This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of cervical myelopathy from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Cervical myelopathy is a common form of neurologic impairment caused by compression of the cervical spinal cord, which is most commonly due to degenerative cervical spondylosis. The condition most commonly presents in older patients with symmetric numbness and tingling in the extremities, hand clumsiness, and gait imbalance. Treatment is usually surgical decompression and stabilization as the condition is associated with stepwise progression. Now, let's get into the episode. Starting with etiology, the pathophysiology of cervical myelopathy can be secondary to degenerative cervical spondylosis, congenital stenosis, ossified posterior longitudinal ligament, tumor, epidural abscess, trauma, or cervical kyphosis. So degenerative cervical spondylosis is the most common cause of cervical myelopathy. Compression is usually caused by anterior degenerative changes such as osteophytes or a disc osteophyte complex. Degenerative spondylolisthesis and hypertrophy of the ligamentum flavum may also contribute. As far as congenital stenosis as the etiology for cervical myelopathy, know that symptoms usually begin when congenital narrowing is combined with spondylotic degenerative changes in older patients. The mechanism of neurologic injury in the setting of cervical myelopathy can be related to direct cord compression or ischemic injury secondary to compression of the anterior spinal artery. Associated conditions with cervical myelopathy include lumbar spinal stenosis, and know that tandem stenosis occurs in the lumbar and cervical spine in approximately 20% of patients. Now, let's talk about the classification of cervical myelopathy. And the ones to know are the neurologic classification, which is based on gait and ambulatory function, the Ranawat classification, and the Japanese Orthopedic Association classification. So starting with the neurologic classification, which again is based on gait and ambulatory function, this is divided into six grades. Grade 0 is root symptoms only or normal. Grade 1 is signs of cord compression with a normal gait. Grade 2 has gait difficulties, but the patient is fully employed. Grade 3 corresponds to gait difficulties that prevent employment. However, the patient walks unassisted. Grade 4 corresponds to an inability to walk without assistance. And grade 5 corresponds to wheelchair or bedbound. The Ranawak classification is divided into three classes. Class 1 has pain with no neurologic deficit. Class 2 has subjective weakness, hyperreflexia, and dysesthesias. And class 3 is divided into two subtypes, class 3A and class 3B. Class 3A corresponds to objective weakness, long track signs, however the patient is ambulatory. While class 3B also has objective weakness and long track signs, but these patients are non-ambulatory. Finally, moving on to the Japanese Orthopedic Association classification, this is a point scoring system out of 17 total points based on function in the following categories, that is upper extremity motor function, lower extremity motor function, sensory function, and bladder function. Note that usually there is a significant improvement at one year post-op, even in cases of severe myelopathy. Now let's talk about the presentation of myelopathy. Symptoms can include neck pain and stiffness, extremity paresthesias, weakness and clumsiness, gait instability, and urinary retention. As far as neck pain and stiffness, axial neck pain is often absent. However, occipital headache is common. In terms of extremity paresthesia, this is characterized by diffuse, bilateral, non-dermatomal numbness and tingling. Weakness and clumsiness is characterized by bilateral weakness and decreased manual dexterity, such as dropping an object and difficulty manipulating fine objects. Gait instability is characterized as the patient feeling unstable on their feet, weakness walking up and down stairs, and know that gait changes are the most important clinical predictor. Finally, urinary retention is rare and only appears late in the disease progression. 
It is not very useful in diagnosis due to the high prevalence of urinary conditions in this patient population. On physical exam, motor evaluation may reveal weakness, a finger escape sign, as well as a positive grip and release test. Weakness is usually difficult to detect on physical exam, and know that lower extremity weakness is a more concerning finding. A finger escape sign is when the patient holds fingers extended and adducted, and the small finger spontaneously abducts due to weakness of the intrinsic muscle. Finally, in terms of the grip and release test, normally a patient can make a fist and release 20 times in 10 seconds. Myelopathic patients may struggle to do this. Sensory evaluation may reveal proprioception dysfunction, decreased pain sensation, and know that vibratory changes are usually only found in severe cases of long-standing myelopathy. Proprioception dysfunction is due to dorsal column involvement, occurs in advanced disease, and is associated with a poor prognosis. In terms of decreased pain sensation, know that pinprick testing should be done to look out for global decrease in sensation or dermatomal changes, and this is due to involvement of the lateral spinothalamic tract. Physical exam may also reveal upper motor neuron signs or spasticity, which can manifest as hyperreflexia, an inverted radial reflex, Hoffman sign, sustained clonus, and a Babinski test. So as far as hyperreflexia, this may be absent when there is concomitant peripheral nerve disease, for example, cervical or lumbar nerve root compression, spinal stenosis, and or diabetes. An inverted radial reflex is tapping the distal brachioradialis tendon, which produces ipsilateral finger flexion. Hoffman sign means snapping the patient's distal phalanx of the middle finger, which leads to spontaneous flexion of the other fingers. This is the most common physical exam finding. As far as sustained clonus, know that greater than three beats is defined as sustained clonus. Sustained clonus has poor sensitivity, that is approximately 13%, but high specificity, that is approximately 100% for cervical myelopathy. Finally, a Babinski test is considered positive with extension of the gray toe. As far as gait and balance assessment, patients will have difficulty performing a toe-to-heel walk, and a Romberg test is when the patient stands with the arms held forward and the eyes closed, and loss of balance is consistent with posterior column dysfunction. Finally, provocative tests in the setting of cervical myelopathy include Lermite sign, and the test is positive when there's extreme cervical flexion that leads to electric shock-like sensations that radiate down the spine and into the extremities. Moving on to evaluation of cervical myelopathy, Recommended views on radiographs include a cervical AP, lateral, oblique, flexion, and extension views. General findings include degenerative changes of uncovertebral and facet joints, osteophyte formation, disc space narrowing, and decreased sagittal diameter, and know that cord compression occurs with a canal diameter of less than 13 millimeters. In a lateral radiograph, it's important to look for the diameter of the spinal canal. A Pavlov ratio of less than 0.8 suggests a congenitally narrow spinal canal predisposing to stenosis and cord compression. The lateral radiograph will also reveal sagittal alignment, that is the C2 to C7 alignment, and the local kyphosis angle. So in terms of the C2 to C7 alignment, this is determined by tangential lines on the posterior edge of the C2 and C7 body on the lateral radiographs in neutral position. The local kyphosis angle is the angle between the lines drawn at the posterior margin of the most cranial and caudal vertebral bodies forming the maximum local kyphosis. The oblique radiograph is important to look for foraminal stenosis, which is often caused by uncovertebral joint arthrosis. Moving on to flexion and extension views, it's important to look for angular or translational instability. Be sure to look for compensatory subluxation above or below the spondylotic slash stiff segment. Moving on to sensitivity slash specificity, Changes often do not correlate with symptoms. 70% of patients by 70 years of age will have degenerative changes seen on plain x-rays.
Moving on to MRI, know that MRI is the study of choice to evaluate the degree of spinal cord and nerve root compression. Findings may include effacement of CSF, which indicates functional stenosis, spinal cord signal changes, which is seen as bright signal on T2 images, otherwise known as myelomalacia, and know that signal changes on T1-weighted images correlate with a poorer prognosis following surgical decompression. Finally, another important finding on MRI to be aware of is that a compression ratio of less than 0.4 carries a poor prognosis. So compression ratio equals the smallest AP diameter of the cord divided by the largest transverse diameter of the cord. In terms of sensitivity slash specificity of MRI, this has a high rate of false positives in that 28% of patients greater than 40 will have findings of a herniated nucleus pulposus or foraminal stenosis. A CT scan without contrast can provide complementary information with an MRI and is more useful to evaluate the ossified posterior longitudinal ligament and osteophytes. CT myelography is more invasive than an MRI but gives excellent information regarding the degree of spinal cord compression. CT myelography is useful in patients that cannot have an MRI, for example those with a pacemaker, or have artifacts, for example local hardware. In CT myelography, contrast is given via C1-C2 puncture and allowed to diffuse caudally or given via a lumbar puncture and allowed to diffuse proximally by putting the patient in the Trendelenburg position. Nerve conduction studies have a high false negative rate, however may be useful to distinguish peripheral from central process, for example ALS. The differential diagnosis for cervical myelopathy includes normal aging, however know that mild symptoms of myelopathy are often confused with a normal aging process. Other diagnoses on the differential for cervical myelopathy include stroke, movement disorders, vitamin B12 deficiency, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, otherwise known as ALS, and multiple sclerosis. Treatment of cervical myelopathy can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes observation, NSAIDs, therapy, and lifestyle modifications. Indications for non-operative management includes mild disease with no functional impairment. Know that function is a more important determinant for surgery than a physical exam finding. Other indications for non-operative management includes patients who are poor candidates for surgery. As far as modalities of non-operative management, medications can include NSAIDs or gabapentin, immobilization in a hard collar with slight flexion, physical therapy for neck strengthening, balance, and gait training. Know that traction and chiropractic modalities are not likely to benefit and do have some risks, and remember to be sure to watch patients carefully for progression. As far as outcomes of non-operative management, improved non-operative outcomes are associated with patients with larger transverse area of the spinal cord, which is defined as greater than 70 square millimeters. Some studies have shown improvement with immobilization in patients with very mild symptoms. Operative options for cervical myelopathy include surgical decompression, restoration of lordosis, and stabilization. This is indicated for significant functional impairment and one to two levels of disease and can be in lordotic, neutral, or kyphotic alignment. As far as the techniques, the appropriate procedure depends on cervical alignment, number of stenotic levels, location of compression, and medical conditions, for example, a goiter. Treatment procedures can include an anterior cervical discectomy slash corpectomy infusion, posterior laminectomy infusion, posterior laminoplasty, combined anterior and posterior procedure, and cervical disc arthroplasty. As far as outcomes, prospective studies show improvement in overall pain, function, and neurologic symptoms with operative treatment. Early recognition and treatment prior to spinal cord damage is critical for good clinical outcomes. The goals of operative intervention in the setting of cervical myelopathy is prevention of continued neurologic decline. Now, let's talk about some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. 
So as far as goals, know that optimal surgical treatment depends on the individual, and the things to consider include the number of stenotic levels, sagittal alignment of the spine, degree of existing motion and the desire to maintain, and medical comorbidities, for example, dysphagia. A simplified treatment algorithm for cervical myelopathy is that when there's greater than 10 degrees of rigid kyphosis or less than 10 degrees of rigid kyphosis, if there's one or two levels of compression, you will do an anterior procedure alone, that is an ACDF slash corpectomy slash a hybrid. When there's greater than 10 degrees of rigid kyphosis but three or more levels of compression, you will do a combined anteroposterior procedure. The anterior will be to correct the kyphosis slash decompress, and the posterior will be to decompress. When there's less than 10 degrees of rigid kyphosis with three or more levels of compression, you will do a posterior alone procedure that is a laminoplasty versus a laminectomy plus fusion. Now let's talk about the different surgical options in a bit more detail. Starting with anterior decompression and fusion or ACDF alone, this is indicated as the mainstay of treatment in most patients with single or two level disease. This is also indicated with fixed cervical kyphosis of greater than 10 degrees and know that in this setting, an anterior procedure can correct the kyphosis. Other indications include compression arising from two or fewer disc segments, and finally another indication is when the pathology is anterior, for example an ossified posterior longitudinal ligament, soft discs, and or disc osteophyte complexes. The approach will use a Smith-Robinson anterior approach. In terms of decompression, a corpectomy and strut graft may be required for multi-level spondylosis. Know that two-level corpectomies tend to be biomechanically vulnerable. Therefore, it is preferable to combine single-level corpectomy with adjacent-level discectomy. Know that there is 7% to 20% rates of graft dislodgement with cervical corpectomy with associated severe complications, including death, that have been reported. As far as fixation for ACDF, anterior plating functions to increase fusion rates and preserve the position of the interbody cage or strut graft. As far as pros and cons of an ACDF, advantages compared to the posterior approach are lower infection rate, less blood loss, and less postoperative pain. As far as disadvantages, be sure to avoid ACDF in patients with poor swallowing function. Now let's talk about an anterior corpectomy infusion. This is indicated for extensive retrovertebral disease and cervical kyphosis preventing from adequate decompression posteriorly. As far as the technique, let's go over anterior fixation alone versus a combined anterior and posterior fixation. So anterior fixation alone is amenable in up to two level corpectomies. In this setting, there will be use of a static anterior cervical plate with a strut graft. A combined anterior and posterior fixation is indicated in three-level corpectomy and above. In this setting, you will use an anterior strut graft and plating combined with a posterior lateral mass screw construct. Know that anterior fixation alone in three-level and above results in a high that is defined as greater than 70% catastrophic failure rate. Now let's talk about laminectomy with posterior fusion. This is indicated for multi-level compression with a kyphosis of less than 10 degrees. Know that greater than 13 degrees of fixed kyphosis is a contraindication for a posterior procedure. In a flexible kyphotic spine, posterior decompression and fusion may be indicated if the kyphotic deformity can be corrected prior to instrumentation. As far as contraindications, a fixed kyphosis of greater than 10 degrees is a contraindication to posterior decompression, as this will not adequately decompress the spinal cord as it will be bowstringing anteriorly. As far as pros and cons of a laminectomy with a posterior fusion, the fusion may improve neck pain associated with degenerative facets, which is a pro, but it is not effective in patients with greater than 10 degrees of fixed kyphosis, which is a con. Moving on to laminoplasty, as far as indications, this is gaining in popularity, it is useful when maintaining motion is desired, and it avoids complications of fusion, so may be indicated in patients at high risk of pseudoarthrosis. 
It's also indicated in the setting of congenital cervical stenosis. Contraindications of a laminoplasty include cervical kyphosis and severe axial neck pain. So in the setting of cervical kyphosis, greater than 13 degrees is a contraindication to posterior decompression, as again, it will not adequately decompress the spinal cord as it is bowstringing anteriorly. Severe axial neck pain is a relative contraindication, and these patients should be fused. As far as the technique of a laminoplasty, know that the volume of the canal is expanded by a hinged door laminoplasty followed by fusion, which is usually performed from C3 to C7. The two techniques for a laminoplasty to be aware of include an open door technique and a French door technique. In an open door technique, a hinge is created unilaterally at the junction of the lateral mass and the lamina and an opening on the opposite side. The opening is held open by bone, suture anchors, or special plates. In a French door technique, a hinge is created bilaterally and an opening is created midline. As far as pros and cons of a laminoplasty, starting with advantages, this option allows for decompression of multi-level stenotic myelopathy without compromising stability and motion, and it avoids post-laminectomy kyphosis. Another advantage is a lower complication rate than multi-level anterior decompression, especially in patients with ossified posterior longitudinal ligaments. Another advantage is that it's a motion-preserving technique, and know that pseudoarthrosis is not a concern in patients with poor healing potential, such as diabetes and chronic steroid users. Finally, a laminoplasty can be combined with a subsequent anterior procedure. Combined laminoplasty with fusion has a theoretical benefit of decreased muscular atrophy and preserved muscle attachments. Disadvantages of laminoplasty include a higher average blood loss than anterior procedures, postoperative neck pain, and it's still associated with loss of motion. Outcomes of laminoplasty are equivalent to multi-level anterior decompression and fusion. Moving on to combined anterior and posterior surgery, this is indicated for multi-level stenosis in the rigid kyphotic spine, multi-level anterior cervical corpectomies, and for post-laminectomy kyphosis. An occipitocervical fusion is indicated for periodontoid panis. Know that posterior-only occipitocervical fusion is safe and effective in promoting panis resolution. Transoral approaches are associated with increased morbidity, especially when surgical time exceeds four hours. Finally, let's talk about laminectomy alone. This is rarely indicated due to the risk of post-laminectomy kyphosis. As far as progressive kyphosis, there is an 11 to 47% incidence if laminectomy is performed alone without fusion. Now let's go over some complications of cervical myelopathy. The ones to know include surgical infection, pseudoarthrosis, postoperative C5 palsy, recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, hardware failure and migration, post-laminectomy kyphosis, postoperative axial neck pain, vertebral artery injury, esophageal injury, dysphagia and alteration in speech, and epidural hematoma. So starting with surgical infection, know that there's a higher rate of surgical infection with the posterior approach than the anterior approach. Pseudoarthrosis has a 12% incidence for single-level fusions and 30% for multi-level fusions. As far as treatment, you can treat with either posterior wiring or plating or repeat anterior decompression and plating if the patient has symptoms of verticulopathy. Moving on to postoperative C5 palsy, this is reported to occur in approximately 4.6% of patients after surgery for cervical compression myelopathy, and there is higher incidence reported in males. There is no significant differences between patients undergoing anterior decompression infusion and posterior laminoplasty. Know that there are higher rates reported following posterior laminectomy infusion. Postoperative C5 palsy occurs immediately post-op to weeks following surgery. The mechanism for postoperative C5 palsy is controversial. In laminectomy patients, it is thought to be caused by tethering of the nerve root with dorsal migration of the spinal cord following removal of the posterior elements. 
Some studies suggest that prophylactic bilateral keyhole foraminotomies at the C4-5 level may help reduce the incidence of this complication. As far as prognosis, patients with postoperative C5 palsy generally have a good prognosis for functional recovery, but recovery takes time. Prolonged recovery is associated with multi-level paresis, a motor grade of less than or equal to 2, and sensory involvement with intractable pain. Moving on to recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, as far as the approach, in the past it has been postulated that the recurrent laryngeal nerve is more vulnerable to injury on the right due to a more aberrant pathway. However, recent studies have shown that there is not an increased injury rate with a right-sided approach. As far as treatment, if you have a post-operative recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy, watch this over time. If it's not improved over six weeks, then an ENT consult should be obtained to scope the patient and inject Teflon. If you are performing revision anterior cervical surgery and there is any suspicion of a recurrent laryngeal nerve from the first operation, obtain an ENT consult to establish prior injury. If the patient has prior recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, perform revision surgery on the same side as the prior injury slash approach to prevent a bilateral recurrent laryngeal nerve injury. Moving on to hardware failure and migration, know that this happens in 7-20% to 20% of cases with a two-level anterior corpectomy. Know that two-level corpectomies should be stabilized from behind. Moving on to post-laminectomy kyphosis, this complication should be treated with an anterior slash posterior procedure. Moving on to dysphagia and alteration in speech, multiple studies have demonstrated the application of local steroid in the retropharyngeal space prior to wound closure to decrease the rate of dysphagia. Finally, in terms of epidural hematoma, this is a rare complication with a 1 in 1,000 incidence. An epidural hematoma is associated with postoperative motor weakness and paresthesias. An epidural hematoma requires emergent MRI and hematoma evacuation. Early evacuation results in better neurologic recovery. Know that the MRI appearance of hematoma depends on age. So if it's hyperacute, defined as less than 24 hours, it will be hyperintense on T2 and hypointense on T1. Finally, let's end this review session talking about prognosis. So as far as natural history, cervical myelopathy tends to be slowly progressive and rarely improves with non-operative modalities. The progression is characterized by a stepwise deterioration with periods of stable symptoms. As far as prognostic variables, early recognition and treatment prior to spinal cord damage is critical for good clinical outcomes. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. Which of the following is the strongest contraindication for expansive open-door laminoplasty for cervical myelopathy? And the choices are 1. Multi-level cervical spondylosis. 2. C2 to C7 rigid kyphosis of 15 degrees. 3. Ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament. 4. C7 sagittal vertical axis of plus 5 centimeters, and 5. Compression ratio of 0.3. The correct answer to this question is 2. C2 to C7 rigid kyphosis of 15 degrees. So expansive open-door laminoplasty is a method of posterior cervical decompression. It is contraindicated for patients with cervical kyphosis unless the surgical plan includes concomitant correction of deformity. Open-door laminoplasty allows direct posterior decompression of the neural elements as well as an indirect anterior decompression by allowing the cord to drift posteriorly. Posterior drift of the cord relies upon the presence of natural cervical lordosis. In the setting of kyphosis, the cord is tensioned ventrally over the vertebral bodies and discs and does not have the redundancy to drift backward. Patients without lordosis would therefore be expected to show less postoperative improvement than those with normal cervical curvature. 
Chiba et al. performed a retrospective review of patients treated with expansive open-door laminoplasty for cervical spondylotic myelopathy and ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament. They found that for patients with an ossified posterior longitudinal ligament, cervical kyphosis was associated with lower recovery rates than those patients with preoperative lordosis. The authors recommended against posterior decompression for cervical spondylotic myelopathy in the setting of ossified posterior longitudinal ligament with concomitant cervical kyphosis. Suda et al. performed a retrospective review of 114 patients who underwent expansive open-door laminoplasty for cervical myelopathy in order to evaluate clinical outcomes and effects on cervical alignment. They found patients with C2 to C7 kyphosis of greater than 13 degrees had much lower rates of improvement compared with those patients with less kyphosis. The authors suggest an anterior decompression be used for patients with kyphosis greater than 13 degrees unless kyphotic correction was planned in addition to a laminoplasty. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, multilevel cervical spondylosis is incorrect as myelopathy caused by multilevel cervical spondylosis is an acceptable indication for laminoplasty. Answer 3, ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament is incorrect as this is also an acceptable indication for laminoplasty. Answer 4, C7 sagittal vertical axis of plus 5 centimeters is incorrect as the C7 sagittal vertical axis is a measure of the global sagittal alignment and is defined as the difference in distance between the C7 plumb line and the posterior superior corner of the S1 body in the sagittal plane. A value of 5 centimeters suggests global kyphosis, however this is not clear from this value alone if kyphosis is occurring in the cervical spine. Finally, answer 5, compression ratio of 0.3 is incorrect, as the compression ratio for myelopathy is the ratio of the smallest sagittal plane diameter of the spinal cord to the transverse diameter of the cord measured on the axial T2 MRI. A ratio of less than 0.4 implies a poor prognosis. Moving on to the next question, postoperative radiculopathy is a known complication of posterior cervical decompression for myelopathy. One potential mechanism of nerve root injury is thought to be tethering of the nerve root with dorsal migration of the spinal cord. What is the most common radicular pattern seen with this condition? And the choices are 1. Motor dominant radiculopathy with weakness of the deltoid. 2. Sensory dominant radiculopathy with pain in the lateral shoulder. 3. Motor dominant radiculopathy with weakness of the wrist extensors. 4. Sensory dominant radiculopathy with pain in the lateral forearm and 5, motor-dominant radiculopathy with weakness of the triceps. The correct answer to this question is 1, motor-dominant radiculopathy with weakness of the deltoid. So the study by Dye et al. retrospectively reviewed 287 consecutive patients with cervical compression myelopathy who had been treated by multilevel cervical laminectomy and identified 37 or 12.9% of patients with postoperative radiculopathy. The diagnosis was either cervical spondylosis in 25 patients or ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament in 12 patients. Radiculopathy was observed from 4 hours to 6 days after surgery. The most frequent pattern of paralysis was involvement of the C5 roots of the motor dominant type. They argue in support of prior studies by Suzuki et al. that postoperative radiculopathy is caused by a tethering injury to the root caused by expansion and dorsal migration of the spinal cord rather than a technical problem. And moving on to the final question, a 35-year-old man complains of clumsiness when buttoning his shirt and frequent episodes of falling when ambulating. Further workup reveals congenital cervical spinal stenosis with spinal cord compression. Because of his young age, posterior laminoplasty is performed. Which nerve root is most likely to be adversely affected following surgery? And the choices are 1, C2, 2, C3, 
3, c4, 4, c5, and 5, c6. The correct answer to this question is 4, c5. So neurologic deterioration during and after surgery is one of the most serious complications of surgery for cervical compression myelopathy. The earliest article by Yonanobu in the journal Spine in 1991 looked at 384 patients over 18 years who underwent surgery for cervical myelopathy. Neurologic deterioration was found in 21 patients or 5.5% of the patients studied. 13 of these showed signs of C5 root paresis while 8 showed signs of spinal cord dysfunction. While an etiology could be described for four of the patients with C5 root paresis with three secondary to graft displacement and one hyperextension, the etiology of the remaining nine was unknown. Even CT myelography could only offer the possible explanation of acute large shift of the spinal cord as being responsible for these defects. Myelograms of 25 patients without neurologic complications showed the maximum cord shift was at C5, but the average shift was not any different from patients with complications. Further studies have corroborated the observances of the 1991 study showing that the C5 root is most affected by postoperative paralysis following posterior cervical decompression. The 2002 paper suggested that in an effort to reduce postoperative C5 nerve root palsy, the clinician should consider intraoperative deltoid and biceps transcranial electrical motor evoke potential and spontaneous electromyography monitoring whenever there is potential for iatrogenic C5 nerve root injury. They were able to detect injury prospectively and avert more serious consequences with intraoperative monitoring. That's all for this review about cervical myelopathy. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.